Reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 35. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Abigail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the holiday that we are celebrating this morning and every morning of our lives, the resurrection of Jesus. Father, we confess that sometimes we have no idea how it's connected to our present reality. I pray this morning through your word that we would see more clearly how it is and glorify you fittingly. In your name we pray, amen. Often people ask you, what is your favorite movie? I don't like that question. I prefer the question, what are your top ten? That way there's less pressure. Uh, You know, I kind of feel it out. But two of my top ten are Godfather 1 and 2. And maybe not fitting for everyone in in this audience, but... Um, the thing that makes Godfather so amazing, if you will, is that the juxtaposition between the crime that these families are involved in, right? Uh, the mafia, and yet the family life they lead, right? There's this kind of beautiful 
family life with honor and, and value and, and education and all the different things, and yet you see the reality of their lives, and, and it seems to not mix. Um, in fact, you know, you think, well, who's in? Who's out? If you're a family member, you're in, right? Until you see what happens to Michael's brother and then in number two. If you haven't seen the movie, I won't ruin it. But uh, if you're a family, you're not necessarily always in. And, okay, why that illustration? It's Easter. You've got to talk about Godfather. I think as Christians, when, when we lose sight of the resurrection, that's where we're left. We're playing a game. We feel like we're doing this thing called Christianity. And we feel like we have religion down. And we do the things we do. But if the resurrection is not driving you, then, then really you're just playing at a game called Christianity, called religion. And for Paul, what he's so bothered by with the Corinthians is they have all the trappings of Christianity that he had left them as he planted this church. But they lost sight of the resurrection. In the very beginning of the letter, you might remember, they had lost sight of the cross. And at the end of the letter, like bookends, it's the resurrection, both of which are the same thing, Christ's death and resurrection. This is what drives our faith. So we have, um, in this passage, something a little different. A lot of Easter sermons want to convince the non-believers that come in about the reality of the risen Christ. And of course, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would love nothing more than for you to come tell me later, and I now believe that Jesus is real. But this passage, Paul is talking to people who do believe Christ rose from the dead. In fact, Every scholar I read believes that verses 1 to 11 that we looked at last week is something the Corinthian audience, the Corinthian church would have read and said, yes, we believe that. Then Paul says in verse 12, well, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Why is there a dichotomy? Why do you confess this over here, but functionally you live this over here? That's what we're going to look at this morning. In Christianity, the resurrection must inform everything you do. Does that feel strange, kind of weird? How does something that's going to happen way off in the future affect my present life now? That's what we're going to look at this morning. First, we're going to look at how the resurrection gives us our theological identity, then it gives us our mission, and finally it gives us our ability or our power to carry out the mission. So first of all, the resurrection gives us our theological identity. Paul um, says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He's, he's, he's posing a question. Um, apparently, some in Corinth had begun to say, yes, Christ rose from the dead, but I don't think we, everybody else, raises from the dead. I think we just die. Now, scholars are not sure what the actual teaching was. Um, some would say maybe... They're, they were borrowing from the Sadducees and had this idea of just death is it. That's encouraging, isn't it? Just You're dead and it's over. Uh, others would say, no, that wasn't what they were doing. They're sort of Gnostic and, and they're believing in uh, the spirit goes on to another world, but the body does not. And they don't, you know, that culture wouldn't like the idea of a corpse standing up kind of a thing. I don't know. All I know is it seems like something that was pervasive in the entire church. And I, I think it's beyond a specific group or a specific teaching. I think what Paul's getting at is, if I could paraphrase it, Corinthians, you say you believe Jesus rose from the dead, yet practically in your life there is absolutely zero evidence of this. 
and you're living as if that's completely separate. And in our modern church, I think we struggle with that. We've turned heaven into something so different from what we do now that it's, there's no connecting point, right? It's clouds, it's harpsichords, it's golf courses. Apparently everybody loves golf in heaven. I don't know how that happens. Um, it's kind of interesting. I'm going to go to heaven and play golf all the time. Uh, yet we've somehow separated it from what is real. So let's get our theological integration going. Paul says this in verse 13. I already mentioned it. For Paul, if there is no resurrection of the dead at the end, then Christ wasn't raised. That's a profound thing. He's saying this. Whatever Christ had happened to him is what happens to you. That's a powerful statement. And then he begins to unpack that in the rest of these verses leading into uh, verse 19. He goes on to say, And if Christ has not been raised, he kind of cascades, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He's drawing the theological implications. If we don't raise, Christ wasn't raised. If Christ wasn't raised, then all of this preaching and your faith is in vain. He even goes so far as to say, in God. Like, we're misrepresenting God if Christ is not raised and if we're not raised. And in verse 16, he continues, he reiterates it. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Excuse me. I had the wrong point there. I was looking down, and I saw the wrong thing. We almost got the wrong illustration. It's a very confusing section that you have to chew on and read it. What Paul is doing is what's called a chiasm. And he's emphasizing the fact that everything links to the other thing. Christ's resurrection leads to our resurrection. Therefore, if we don't raise, Christ is not raised. Preaching is in vain. And in verse 19, kind of the high point of this little section, if Christ, if all we have in Christ is the hope of this life, then we are to be pitied. And I think that's powerful because we really do, if we're not careful, apply Christ only to this life and we don't realize what's going to happen in the future. And we don't know how the two connect. And what we have is a, th- a theological separation. What you believe is not connect to your daily life. Uh, I, I, I was thinking of an illustration of that, and the best thing I could come up with, and I'm going to offend some of you, seatbelts. I would love to see a show of hands, but you shouldn't do it. Who doesn't wear their seatbelt? Oh, okay, I shouldn't have asked. Don't show me your hands. I can't. I'm judging you right now. Um, in driver's ed, I think like every day we had like four videos on seatbelts. You, you know, dummies being thrown out of the car. And even if you're only going four miles an hour, the G-forces are tremendous. Um, so for me, locking the seatbelt is completely natural. Like it's a habit, right? Then I get in the car with somebody who doesn't have a seatbelt on. And I just have the envision of them flying out the window. If like I absolutely, if I just tap the brake, they're gone. They're going to torpedo. And I say, why aren't you wearing a seatbelt? They never say to me, what good does that do? Every time, they know completely what seatbelts are for. If you really had the conversation and they wanted to, they would probably tell you, I've seen those videos. I believe it's all true. But there's some sort of disintegration. That's why I asked you guys not to raise your hand. You're feeling the weight right now. The two people that raised their hand are like, wait till after this sermon. I'll tell them why I don't wear my seatbelt. Paul cannot believe this church, who says they believe Christ rose from the dead, are living as if the resurrection were not real. He can't believe it. And he's trying to get their theological integration 
back together. And he's saying it needs to connect. And so, now, if it connects, what's the point? And he says, starting in verse 20, if we are raised, there's a mission. So point number two we're going to look at is the mission of the resurrection. It's a really amazing section. Uh, You could spend a lot of time unpacking verses 20 to 28. I think it's somewhat revolutionary, and it it blows up this reality that a lot of us with Christianity just have this mindset that we've stumbled into it, right? I, I sort of came to this belief system. I, you know, and I think it's true, and we have this sort of folksy idea that I go to a church, I do these practices, and all these things, or I'm a Christian. And sometimes we don't have any idea of the mission we're in. But when what Paul tells the Corinthians and he's telling us is when you became a Christian, you were called into a mission. Look at the mission. Starting in verse 20. But if, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is the first one to rise from the dead, and the rest of us will begin to raise when we die and he returns. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And he elaborates in verse 22. In Adam, all die. So everybody that was born from Adam will die. That's the punishment of the fall. Right? In the garden, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, sin entered the world. No one disputes that there is evil and there is death. And that came from Adam. They dispute that, but they don't dispute the former. The question is, how does death get defeated? And in this scripture, we see Christ came. Christ lived a perfect life. And he defeats death. And he's the first fruits. What's the, what does that mean? If you have a garden, you go out into your garden and you see the first flower or the first crop show up, that's the first fruit. And, and it will have more. You know more will come. When Christ rose from the dead on Easter, that's the reason everybody is celebrating is we're saying that's going to be us. That's our future. That's where we're going. Paul continues. Um, Then comes the end. He fast forwards in verse 24. In the end, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all in subjection under his feet. What Paul is saying there is this. Jesus is the first fruit. He rose. And in the end... He's going to deliver the kingdom to God and defeat death forever. But there's this in-between span right now where he's in heaven, he's ruling, he's reigning, and who's in charge? Like, who's carrying out his vision? The church. Um, I, I think sometimes we go, well, wait, how does that look? How, would, how do we make any improvements right now based on the future? Um, I was thinking about this. Like, how would anything I do right now look like anything beautiful in the future, you know, in the resurrection? Can you imagine? It's too hard to understand. You think to yourself, when Christ returns, he wipes away all of our tears, we're, we're remade in him, and, and all of our sin is gone, we're perfect. What good is anything now that looks righteous? What good is it? Does anyone ever struggle with that? So I was thinking about it. What would it look like, for example, if you went back in time to the Wright brothers. And they're sketching this airplane out. And no one's ever flown before. And you said, this is really cool. Let me show you something. You're the Apostle Paul here. 
and you show them future jet aircraft videos, which they don't even know what a video is, but they're looking at that, and they're amazed. They're going to be tempted to say, just shut this down, right? Why would I even continue designing an airplane when that is coming in the future, right? And you say to them, we don't get there without you. We don't get to that jet airplane without you designing your plane. God is pouring out through Christ and his spirit through the church the righteousness that he's going to present to his father. And it's real, factual, actionable righteousness. Right? All the things that glorify God and that we do on this earth that bring him glory are changing the events of the fall right before our very eyes. And it matters. And it connects. And you need to see that your life now matters. I read a a book called All of Life Redeemed. I highly recommend it. I've got a copy if you really want to borrow it. They're out of print. Otherwise, you go to eBay. I think people sell them for 13 cents plus shipping. It's a really good book. The, the author is telling college students about the fact that life right now matters, and he uses this illustration. Sales. Okay, it's a normal job. See, a lot of people hear this kind of teaching and think, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to go off and do something great. Or at least they think I should do that, but I'm not going to. This author has an example. It's a metaphor or an illustration he made up. There's a Christian sales convention, and uh, they're all, all the salesmen there are Christians. And so he goes on to the, sale, on the convention floor and asks them, how does your Christianity play out in your daily sales? And he asks these questions. The first person says this. Um, you know, I'm really good at sales. I love it. And basically, I do whatever I can to win. I want to be good, but I also am very, very careful to not break any of the rules of the company or any of the rules of the government. So if I'm not breaking the law, I can do whatever I need to do to sell the product. Okay, obviously not good. The next person he comes to says this. You know what? As soon as I can afford it, I'm going to Bible college. I'm out. I went into ministry. The third person he comes to says this, well, when I'm talking to a family before I ever show them anything, I listen, and I, take, I, I really take stock of what they need, how they're doing financially, and then I only show them a product or a service, depending on what they sell, that's really going to help them and that I know they can afford. And the author is just showing an example of what redemption looks like carrying out the mission of God in real time, in real space. If the Spirit is working in your life, you take the acre you have. For the Wright brothers, it was airplanes. Whatever your acre is, and you garden it for the glory of God. And that is carrying forward his mission. Right? Does that make sense? Paul says in Philippians 3, um, he's, Paul has been living for the for the identity of Jewish, you know, to be a good Pharisee, to be a good uh, zealous man. He's, he's all these wrong motives. And when Christ becomes clear to him, he says um, that, he, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. For Paul, he is saying, I live out daily the resurrection by no longer trying to, to fit those other things. I'm trying to live the garden that God has given me. I want to elaborate on the next point, but I just want to read this quote to kind of hit this idea 
of the call to live out the resurrection now. This author says, to enjoy God forever is to cultivate a taste for this project. That is your life. To become more and more the sort of person for whom eternal life would be sheer heaven. I think sometimes we all just assume um, eternity would be wonderful, and it will be, but not if we aren't loving God now. right? Not if our lifestyle right now isn't one that loves the Lord. Does that make sense? Here's another author, John Henry Newman. Heaven isn't for everyone. Yikes. It was a footnote, by the way. Maybe that was why. He says, it is an acquired taste, and it's hard to acquire while your taste buds still resemble a crocodile's back. An unholy person would be restless and unhappy in heaven. So the mission of God is to become more and more like Christ in his death and resurrection in whatever arena you've been called to, in your family, in your marriage, in your occupation, in your, in your town, in your church, in your country, in your world, right? But where does the power come from? Where does the power come from? Well, the resurrection also gives you the power. Um, Richard Loveless says this, True spirituality is not a superhuman religiosity. It is simply true humanity released from the bondage of sin by, and being renewed by the Holy Spirit. His point is this. We're not trying to go put on something, but rather... We're trying to live in light of the reality that something's been taken off. And that's what I want to spend a few moments explaining that Paul gets at here. In verse 28, to the end of our passage, he shows you what would happen if you lived out the theology that the resurrection didn't apply to your current life. He says this in verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Very strange wording. Uh, what he is saying is this. We, when we have a baptism, we're going to have a baptism in a few weeks, hopefully a couple, maybe even a couple. But um, we're going to have a baptism, and it's Marty, and many of you are getting to know Marty. And when he's baptized, what he is communicating to you and to God, and God's communicating to him and to us, is that he has died in Christ, and he's been raised in Christ, right? That he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Now, Paul's saying this. You all perform baptisms in Corinth. We saw that in chapter 1. But if there's no resurrection, you're just baptizing into the death. But you're not baptizing into the resurrection. You're symbolizing with Christ in his dying, but, but you're not symbolizing with his being raised. And that bothers Paul. And he gives a couple of other examples. Why are we in danger, verse 30, every hour? In other words, why are the apostles constantly... If, if the resurrection has sort of either already happened or this is the best that we get now and there's no future hope, then why are we in danger every hour? Verse 30. And then verse 32. What do I gain if I, humanly speaking, fought with beasts at Ephesus? Again, what does that mean? Uh, he didn't actually fight beasts, although some uh, scholars wondered if he had. You know, like in kind of the Roman world way. Rather, he fought people who brought false theology and, and brought accusations to him, and it was straining to him. And he, fought, he calls them beasts and calls that situation as if he were take, fighting beasts. He says, what, why would I do that, verse 32 still, 
if the dead are not raised? And then here's the natural implication. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And then in verse 34, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. What is this drunken stupor he's referring to? The drunken stupor is what we find ourselves in when though we are raised, we live our lives as if we are still dying people. Throughout this passage, Paul talks about those that have fallen asleep. For Paul, to have died in Christ and raised with Christ means, in some weird, hard-to-understand sense, we've already died. That death has lost its sting. That when we die as Christians, though the world looking on will see it and go, they died and have a funeral, from our perspective, we'll have passed into eternal life unscathed, waiting for our future home, our future body. We'll look at it in a few weeks, but verse 56, Paul says this, The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin, and this is, this is out of nowhere almost, is the law. Okay? The sting of death is sin. So here's the question. You're trying to figure out, what is Ryan even talking about? How does the resurrection give me power? And I'm going to summarize it right here. You all live by the law. Everybody in this room we evaluate ourselves by how, and how we're doing by rules, by the, world's, by the world's standards. How we look, how we feel, right? our religion. Paul's not saying the law is a problem. Right? He's saying it's our use of the law. And it's not just the Ten Commandments. We use thousands of rules, millions of rules, to justify ourselves. Going back to Philippians 3, Paul says, I used to think I was a good guy, because I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, right? I was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was all proud of these identity markers. What are your identity markers? What are you measuring yourself by? What is it that you think this is why I'm either doing great or why I'm really not doing well at all? Either way, you're living as one that is dead. You're a dead man walking, Paul would say. Recently, I was watching... Uh, Grayson said, let's watch the final holes of this LPGA event. So we turned it on. And I don't, I don't know all the details. I'll do my best. But it's the, it's the one where Lacey, Lexi, uh, she's winning by four strokes. It's a major. And some, uh, some rule official walks up and says, turns out we're docking you four strokes for a penalty. Here's what happened. The day before, on like a one-foot putt or a short putt, she had her ball marked. She put the ball back down in a wrong spot. It wasn't way wrong, just a little wrong. Moves her marker. And she puts it in. According to the rules of golf, she broke a rule. She moved, the ball was too far from the marker. There's a, there's a penalty. So once she pulls that ball marker away, she's been penalized. But she didn't penalize herself. Golf is unique in that unlike any other sport, you are to penalize yourself. Can you imagine like the NBA? Like, I hit that guy. You know, No one does that. Golfers do it. We applaud you, golfers that do this well. But the problem is she didn't penalize herself. So her second problem was she turns in a scorecard, hands it in, and that's a second penalty, turning in a wrong scorecard. Okay, crazy. But here's the, you can talk to people, you know, forever about, well, she did, you know, here's the biggest problem for me. Ready? You know how they found out she made a mistake? A viewer watching on television. 
some poor dude that probably can't break 100 is sitting at home with potato chips, right? With nothing better to do than to ruin her life. Now, what's the point? Don't take me too far. Don't go, well, let's talk about golf and rules. None of us want that kind of scrupulous life applied to us. That guy on the couch doesn't want us on our webcam watching him and going, yeah, yeah, but when you got up, you know, you, you, know, you did this and you ate the wrong food and you were late to work. And we, No one wants that kind of scrutiny, right? Least of all, obviously, Lexi. But yet, your own flesh applies that scrutiny every day. Satan in this world, and most of all, I really believe your flesh, your fallen nature, are trying to convince you you are constantly failing. Try officiating yourself when everything you do has the potential for being wrong. It leads to two, I think, two extreme dichotomous things. One is a false view that you're doing everything right, and you've simply lowered the standard. Even though your conscience deep down doesn't believe it, you've calcified that, and you stand firm. I'm doing it right. Or you just say to heck with it, it's all wrong. I'm just going to quit trying. Those are your two extremes. And when Paul says the law is dead in Christ, when, 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 in verse 56, let me read it again. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Every commentator I looked at said he's really in one verse giving shorthand for all of Romans 7 and 8 saying, look, there is a new reality. You are no longer condemned. And when Easter, when we celebrate Jesus' rising from the dead, we have to remember that that means death has been conquered and that you are no longer measured by this world's standards. You are no longer measured by the standards that your flesh is trying to apply to yourself. There is nothing harder to do than live this life thinking that everything you do is potentially wrong. Because it is. You need Jesus. You need grace. And the Holy Spirit has applied that grace to you. If you are in Christ, Shane said it very, very well this morning, it's a miracle that you can even believe a little bit that he rose from the dead. That's not, that's not something you made up. It's, it's crazy to think that way. Let me just be the first to tell you. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, logically, it's crazy. It takes the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and see this really happened. Right? That will change you. When you can finally be honest, by faith, this is true. And you follow the steps. And if Christ is raised, then I am raised. And I'll someday our, my body will be raised. And everything I do in life, every problem I face, every step I take, I can take through the lens of Christ and the resurrection. Is that how you're living? Is that the way you're approaching your life? Because if not, that guilt is rising to the surface. That guilt of, of errors and mis- mistakes is what's driving your, your daily life. So, going back to the Godfather, you know, you can enjoy in Christianity all the beauties of the party, right? There's this party going on, but you don't have to fear that someone's trying to kill you, right? That's the, that's the beauty of the Gospel is that in Christ... You are already dead and you are already raised. Your body will die. And you'll have a new heavenly body. But you don't have to live out of fear and guilt. So I hope, in some small way, this Easter, we can begin to connect the reality of our future into the present. 
that we can, we can, like Paul, die every day to our flesh, to our sin, and live resurrected lives every day in Christ. Does that make sense? Is that something that you are excited about? Um, because here's the problem. It's not easy to do. There's no steps to this. Because you will, you're, you will do everything you can do to avoid dying. So, let me give you an example. You're in an argument. You know you said something rude. You ought to apologize. What do you feel? The thought of apologizing feels like what? Death. It happens almost, I hate to say this every day, where I'm like, oh, I need to say I'm sorry, or I ought to really go back to this relationship. The only way it's possible is if, in that, is if I go to the Lord, I confess my sin, and I pray that the Lord would show me that my identity is not in winning an argument and how someone else thinks about me. It's in Christ alone. When that can begin to take root, get it freshly, I can then go to broken relationships, broken places in my life, broken places in this world, and bring righteousness. Because I'm no longer doing it for me. I'm doing it for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are resurrected Christians. That is longing for our bodies to be resurrected, that is already having the first fruits of the resurrection through your Spirit. And yet, Lord, we live as dead men and women walking all the time. We live as if this earth is the only thing we'll ever have. There is no future. Father, we actually proclaim with the Corinthians the truth of your resurrection, Jesus, that you did die, you were buried, and you raised again. But so often we, we don't believe it practically. And we need your spirit to open our eyes to see what would it look like even for one day, one hour, to live as if this were true. We pray you would open up our eyes to the opportunities in our midst to bring healing and restoration and hope. Father, we pray you'll open our eyes to the areas that we stake our claim, the idols of our hearts, the, the false hopes we have. Help us put those to death. Help us rest in you alone. All by your glory, Father, and through the precious work of your Son, Jesus. Amen.